Hello, welcome back to the program. My name is William Hemsworth. It's great to be with you all after a couple week break. We're so honored to have my guest, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn. He's the father of Michael Scanlon, professor of biblical theology and the new evangelization at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. He is the founder and president of the St. Paul Center, an apostolate dedicated to teaching Catholics to read scripture from the heart of the church. He has been married to Kimberly for 41 years. Uh, they have six kids. Their son, one of their sons was recently ordained as a priest, another's in seminary, and recently uh, was blessed with another grandchild. So the, he's the author and editor of over 40 popular and academic books. Uh, Dr. Hans works include best-selling titles rome sweet home the lamb's supper and hail holy queen and this past year he's released hope to die the christian meaning of death and the resurrection of the body it is right and just why the future of civilization depends on true religion and the latest release the decline and fall of sacred scripture how the bible became a secular book welcome dr han welcome back to the program how are you it's good to be with you, William. I'm doing really well. And uh, I should mention, we should update that bio since uh, last month. We've now been married for 42 years and grandchild number 21 is on the way. And so, yeah, Father Jeremiah was ordained earlier this year in May and next spring, our second seminary and son Joe is scheduled to be ordained as a transitional deacon for the Steubenville Diocese too. So, We've that's got a lot on our plate these days. That's that's absolutely amazing. I'll definitely keep him in prayer. And yeah, congratulations on all the blessings the Lord is showering on you. It's, it's amazing to see. Yeah. And thanks great. for sharing them all on social media so we could all enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> so on your latest book, um, what made you and your co-author, Dr. Benjamin Weicker, decide to write this book? Because it's a very interesting book. Yeah. Well, you know, it goes back uh, over 30 years to... Pope Benedict, when he was still Cardinal Ratzinger, came to New York City and in 1988 gave the famous Erasmus Address on crisis in biblical interpretation. And he was focusing his own theological and philosophical uh, gaze upon the uh, historical critical methods and historical criticism in general. And he was pointing out how it often it's often disguised as something neutral or objective, pure science, when in fact it has uh, ulterior motives. It has a, a philosophical background as well as a bias. And so he was gently encouraging scholars to apply criticism to historical criticism. And so that is what really got me excited because I had been going through uh, doctoral seminars at Duquesne for one year and then for two more years at Marquette. And over the years, I was exposed as a member of the Society of Biblical Literature to historical criticism in general, historical critical methods. And yet how uncritical critics are in being almost hypercritical when it comes to the historical record of the Old Testament or the New, but also the theological truth claims. And so this got me going. And by uh, around 1993, five years later, uh, Carl Keating came to visit one summer for a conference I was hosting called Defending the Faith. And at the end of it, he came over to the house and we just spent like three hours together. And then he asked early on, can I get the recorder out? So we had a little handheld recorder and he just taped the conversation. And much of what we discussed at that point was published in his magazine, This Rock. And it was entitled The Bible Politicized. And so back in 93, I had my baby steps 
in looking at especially New Testament criticism, but also Old Testament criticism. We got so many favorable remarks uh, about that article, which really was an interview conversation that I set out to, um, well, I, I set out to publish my dissertation and then afterwards to uh, focus my attention, my energy, my time on a project, taking that article, uh, the Bible politicized and turning it into a book. And so uh, about eight years ago, it was around oh, 2013, Dr. Ben Weicker and I had finished up a project that took us a lot longer. I mean, we were thinking two to three years, it was more like seven or eight years and I'm holding the fruit of that project, I mean, that labor. It was called Politicizing the Bible, the Roots of Historical Criticism, and the Secularization of Scripture, 1300 to 1700. And this book was over 600 pages long, and it's small type, so it could have easily come in around 800 if they hadn't been careful. And the reviews were so surprisingly favorable, positive reviews, from historical critical scholars themselves that we, re we recognize we have got to summarize the book. We've got to synthesize our findings because everybody was pointing out that, wait a minute, 1300 to 1700? Don't you mean 1700 to the present? Because almost everybody assumes that historical criticism doesn't really begin until the 18th century. But what we found was that the roots of historical criticism the philosophical, the scientific, and especially the political roots of a secularizing narrative, a de-supernaturalizing narrative, this goes back to the 1300s, to Marsilius of Padua, to William of Ockham, and to late medieval philosophical moves that were almost always using scripture. And so over the last eight years since this massive book came out, we kept plugging away little by little we had done a number of other projects together, but at long last, this book came out, The Decline and Fall of Sacred Scripture, or How the Bible Became a Secular Book. And we basically walk through the much larger chapters and distill this so that the ordinary lay reader who might be highly motivated, but not all that professionally well-trained, might really pick up the main points of this narrative and figure out why this decline of scripture and why the fall of scripture as a sacred liturgical text was practically inevitable once you plot the trajectory of the earlier moves that were made in the 1300s, the 1400s, and then of course by Luther in the 1500s, sola scriptura, you know, subverting the sacraments, denying the tradition as having any authority. You know, by that point, I think we can demonstrate that this philosophical movement has such momentum that invariably it is going to end up secularizing the whole worldview of the West as it's done. Absolutely. Now, a moment ago, you talked about how it started in the 1300s. And like you said, you go through a, a, you go through a big history in there. In your view, what specific event in the 1300s started this trajectory? Well, I mean, it's the rivalry between emperors that the Pope adjudicates against Ludwig of Bavaria. And, and Ludwig, or Louis, gets the backing of Marsilius of Padua, whose massive work, Defensor Pacis, or the Defender of the Peace, is a weaponized work of philosophical acumen. And what Marsilius is doing is basically transferring the authority that Christ conferred upon the Pope as the successor to Peter and the whole sacramental hierarchy of the church 
The church is reduced to something that only pertains to the soul, not the body, heaven, not earth, the spiritual realm, not the physical or the material realm. And so the true defender of the peace is the secular ruler. And so no wonder Prince Louis or Ludwig of Bavaria backs him. But you also have uh, William of Ockham, uh, a Franciscan who ends up excommunicated, again, because not only of his rivalry with the Pope and his choice, but also because of his work. Uh, William of Ockham basically provides the broader philosophical foundation for what Marsilius of Padua is doing. And both of them serve together in the court of, of Louis. And I would say that two-decade period represents the seismic shift. Uh, it might seem subtle, but it ends up being significant, substantial, truly a seismic move that brings about the changing of the tectonic plates of Catholic culture. And even though it takes another century or two to recognize the birth of what we now call the Via Moderna, the modern way, and the eclipse or the subversion of the Via Antiqua, the ancient way, uh, by the time you get out of the 1300s into 14th century Renaissance humanism, and especially Machiavelli's work on the prince, which surprisingly engages scripture much more than we would expect, but back then you had to, or else you had no argument whatsoever. And, and by the time you get through the 1300s with Marsilius and Occam, into the 1400s, especially with Machiavelli, you get to the 1500s with my former hero, Martin Luther, who famously stated, I'm nothing if I'm not an Occamist. There's no proof that he ever read a single page of Aquinas in his own formation to be an Augustinian monk, to be a priest, to be a, a professor of, of scripture and theology. At that point in time, the decadence of late medieval philosophy was really, in a certain sense, of a field of weeds. And uh, so what Luther is doing with Sola Scriptura is so much more than what we associate with Protestantism. The success of the Reformation in so many ways has to be, uh, it, it has to be linked to the birth of the, the secular nation states whose princes were fueled basically by Marsilius, by Occam, and especially by Machiavelli. And so the German princes backing Luther guaranteed the success of the Reformation, but also guaranteed the success of a reading of scripture that is desacramentalizing it, desupernaturalizing it. And it's basically doing what Brad Gregory speaks of in, in the, you know, when he speaks of the unintended consequences of the Reformation, that the Reformation sets a tsunami, it unleashes a tidal wave of secularization so that uh, faith alone is individual, it's private, it's the Holy Spirit and me and Jesus, you know, but you're moving basically from the church, which had united Christendom, to the state, which now is going to break up into what is famously referred to for the first time as Europe. Even Roger Lundeen of, of Wheaton speaks of how united the Catholic family had been through the 1400s. It was coming apart, but by the time Luther's life is done, you really have such profound fragmentation that Europe has emerged, not the church, but the state. And the fact is, Luther might say faith, but it was no longer theology because now theology is a, de a divisive force that is disrupting the unity. And so you, you end up 
really secularizing things so much that by the time you get out of the 1500s into the 1600s with Descartes and rationalism, you can see that the move is completed in a certain way from the church to the state, from faith to reason, from theology to philosophy, from the monastery and the Catholic university to a secular national university, uh, and even a Protestant, uh, Michael Legospi, uh, when he was working on his dissertation at Harvard, speaks of the, um, the eclipse of scripture or uh, how the, 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 the demise of scripture and the rise of modern biblical studies. And so even the language of sacred scripture is a reminder that scripture belongs in the church, in its liturgy, along with the sacred tradition, along with the Holy Eucharist, the sacred liturgy. But when you take it out, you end up placing it, you know, transplanting it into the modern state universities where the faculty are appointed and promoted on the basis of how well they advance the secular agenda of the Germans or the French or especially the British. And, you know, it seems so striking when you first discover it. And then suddenly, you know, it's like all of these spokes converge on the hub of a wheel that is about this progressive narrative of secularization. And make no mistake about it, there are two entirely different narratives in competition. You know, one is the sacred narrative that Christ is the Lord of history, and that we can read from scripture and learn that we're not spectators who are just in the side, you know, in the stands watching right. salvation history in the past. We are immersed in this. And, you know, from a prophetic perspective, you can sense that uh, we, if we read scripture from the heart of the church, we're not imposing a meaning that is extrinsic or alien to the Bible. We're basically reading this ancient document on its own terms, the terms of faith, grace, the Holy Spirit, and particularly the life of Christ in his mystical body, the totus Christus, and that sort of thing. Whereas if you take it out of the church, apart from the liturgy and the living tradition, you know, I, I liken it to a man who's claiming to be a scientist, a botanist, but who can't figure out why are the plants wilting that I ripped out of the forest and I brought into the lab and I placed them under the hot, bright lights and they're no longer living as an organism, they're, they're, they're wilting, you know? And to me, that is a hermeneutical move that is not only spiritually debilitating, it's scientifically retrograde, you know? So in other words, to read scripture from the heart of the church is to read it on its own terms. You know, to read it outside of the living tradition is in a certain sense, a hijacking, you know? And so a tone deaf music critic can claim to be more objective than a lover of Mozart who's writing a review of a particular concert. But the fact is one is biased towards classical music, but the other one is at least partially deaf to what it is they will be hearing and critiquing. Likewise, someone who's colorblind, who goes into an art exhibit, you know, cannot tell you about the works in the exhibition, claiming scientific objectivity, neutrality. No, he's blinded by his own, well, we don't know what we don't know. And so it's a kind of will blindness. And, you know, by the time we finish up going through, you know, such things as the English Civil War, as well as Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and so on, you know, what Ben and I have done, I think, is to show that historical criticism, which most scholars assume begins in the 1700s, was by then a fait accompli. 
that historical criticism is a secular worldview. It's a philosophical outlook that supplies subsequent historical study with a set of presuppositions that make it incapable of determining anything more than the human. If there is a divine element in history, if there's a divine truth in sacred scripture, you're tone deaf, you're colorblind, you can't see it because you refuse to. And not only that, but I would say that um, by, the, by the 18th century, by the 1700s, the political and the scientific and the philosophical moves have all been triangulated in a way that is, it's mechanical, it's a mechan you, you see the world as a mechanism, it's also nominalistic, you've reduced things down to particulars, a mathematical approach to real things being individuated, you know, particulars alone. And I mean, I'm trying to squeeze an ocean through a funnel in this book sure. with Ben, but I, I think in a certain sense, this is what Catholics need in order to understand the fact that reading scripture from the heart of the church is not only spiritually more satisfying, but it's a scientifically superior way of reading scripture, because if a scientific theory is to be tested, it's tested on the basis of its explanatory power. And so if you apply a hermeneutic of faith to inspire documents, and you get more out of it, and you exhibit much greater explanatory power for the coherence and the unity of 73 different books, you know, that will pass the test of a scientific hypothesis being validated, and a theory being accepted. The problem is that Catholic scholars for well more than a century and a half have been so complacent, they've backed themselves into being, in a certain sense, complicit. And, and so you found in the last 70 years, historical criticism is sort of the air you breathe, whether you're a member of the Society of Biblical Literature or the Catholic Biblical Association. And you know, the last thing I would say is this, that when it comes to historical criticism as a philosophical, pseudo-scientific worldview, um, that was basically established and made nearly universal in the Western world by the end of the 18th, 18th century. So that in the 19th century, what we often confuse with historical criticism is the rise of historical critical methods. In other words, the overarching framework is historical criticism, where you cannot see the divine, you cannot see the supernatural, you cannot see the presence of Christ speaking through scripture today, you basically blot your ears. And so by the 1860s and 70s, historical criticism spawns the first of a series of what we would call historical critical methods, source criticism, with Gunkel doing it in the Psalms, uh, I should say Valhausen doing it with the Pentateuch, you know, and then you have uh, Holtzmann and Streeter doing it with Mark and Q and the, the two source view. And by the early part of the, uh, the, the, the 20th century, Hermann Gunkel using form criticism with the Psalms, Debelius and Boltmann applying form criticism to the Gospels, the synoptic tradition. And then afterward, the Second World War, you have redaction criticism, which is the third and final primary historical critical method. So source, form, and redaction criticism. You have Konzelman with Luke, you have Markson with Mark, you have Borncom with Matthew. By the time I'm schooled in the 70s, it's all we're taught. Even though we're studying at evangelical institutions, you know, the two-source view of Mark plus Q, you know, even though the early church fathers were unanimous about Matthean priority, even though critics are honest about the fact that there's no 
record. There's no mention in passing of Q. There's not a fragment of Q. You know, and so we're, we're building hypotheses almost like castles resting upon a not, a, a not so firm foundation of the cloud, you know? And so once I begin to peel back the layers and recognize, okay, history is never something that is done in a strictly neutral way. History is always done in a way that is informed by a philosophical outlook. So is it natural or anti-supernatural? But if by reason we can know the existence of God, his attributes, and his providential governance, if by natural reason we can detect in the natural order the natural moral law, you know, then we can move from philosophical logic to historical reason and recognize that there is a God, and if he's present and active in history, his presence and his activity can be known through miracles, through prophecy, by Jesus Christ's own claims to be divine, and his intention to establish a church and to govern that and to protect it for 2000 years. And so if you do historical methodology based upon natural theology, the natural moral law, as well as the discoverability of the divine and the supernatural in history, then there is nothing wrong with historical critical methods, so long as they're informed by the proper presuppositions. But that's almost never the case. I'm going to press pause, William. Thank you for letting me go on, because I realize we probably lost 60 to 80 percent of our of our viewers. But, you know, hopefully they can get the book because, you know, I, I feel as though this is like a spiritual volcano within us. You know, Ben shares it, but I have been consumed by it for over 25 years. My preoccupation is with the positive, the constructive, the sacramental, the Eucharistic, you know, to show people. The only thing Jesus calls the New Testament is a sacrament. He never says, write this in remembrance of me. I'm glad that some of the disciples did, but most of them didn't. Over half of the 12 never contribute a single book to what we call the New Testament, but they all celebrated the Eucharist, which is what Christ called the New Testament. It's what the New Testament writers call the New Testament. You know, And so to re-sacramentalize our understanding of Scripture, again, is to read it on its own terms and that's what a proper hermeneutic does. You read a document on the terms that were there in the intention of the authors and the readers as well. Uh, I, I just feel like for Catholics to step into the arena and become public teachers or public intellectuals, this sort of secular, progressive, radical narrative has got to be unmasked and exposed for the pseudoscience that it really is and the bad philosophy too. A little tokenism goes a long way. <laughs> oh, amen. Yeah, don't feel bad about going on. I've been reading a lot about Matthean priority and Q over the last couple months, and that's whole that's whole other shows on that. Right. <laughs> now, I want to go back to something that you all wrote in chapter one, and you wrote that the last place that one should go to study the Bible is the university. Some may find that shocking, but why is that? Well, because you know, know you kind of you kind of hinted at it already, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you go back to the discover the historical roots of the university, you know, it's really exciting to be honest to see Bologna, but especially Paris, emerging as a result of the mendicant revival. The Franciscans and the Dominicans were basically saying to the Catholic world, "Look, you don't have to be a monk uh, in Cluny. You don't have to be a Benedictine in order to be." striving for holiness. You can do it in the monastery, but you can also take it out of the monastery 
into the world. And so the rise of the modern university in the 11th and 12th century is really a move from holiness can only be achieved in the monastery to know holiness can be taken out into the world, which is what the Franciscans and the Dominicans were doing, and why a Franciscan and a Dominican, Bonaventure and Aquinas, are both teaching at the University of Paris, but with this proviso. The University of Paris in the 13th century was basically taught by clergy and you know, the, 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 the students were all clerics. They were all either seminarians or gotcha. priests in training and that sort of thing. And so out of the monastery into the university, out of the cloistered environment into the world. And, and so the university had a very wonderful beginning. But once you see by the 14th and 15th centuries, the tidal wave of secularism coming through Occam and Marsilius and others, the university has already become a battleground. Uh, I'm thinking of Astrid Gabriel, who is the founder of the Medieval Institute at Notre Dame. He fled Hungary in 56 with the Hungarian Revolt and managed to basically stockpile the Medieval Institute with this amazing library of late medieval studies. And he shows that the universities in the 1400s were a battleground versus the, the moderni versus the antiqui. If you backed Aquinas, if you backed Bonaventure, if you even backed Unscotus, you were considered ancient. And so the moderni were the ones who were following Occam. They were known as the Occamisti. And there were faculty wars, votes, and then you would see entire faculty members removed because they're antiqui, the ancients. And so Cologne was sort of the the last holdout in the 1400s. By the time Luther is being trained as an Augustinian, I think 13 out of 14 monasteries and all of the universities have been basically rendered nominalistic, voluntaristic with this strong secularizing tendency. So fast forward to our time, you know, the universities have been the vanguard of the secular political leadership since really late in Luther's life and then it only grew more and more. And so, you know, the, the removal of the divine, the sacramental, the supernatural, this is not accidental. This is intentional. It's agenda-driven. And so, again, you know, the, this sounds like a conspiracy theory, you know, but if you see that movie uh, with uh, Mel Gibson, you realize that, you know, uh, that it was true. Science and philosophy and history, they really are conspiring in a way that is intentionally secularizing society. And so by the time Catholic universities today, I mean, even Fulton Sheen said that mm -hmm. in the 1970s, you know, if, if you as Catholic parents want your children to lose their faith, by all means, send them to Catholic colleges and universities. They'll lose it more quickly than if they went to state schools. And, and that was the legacy, not just post-conciliar, but it was already engaged. It was already in, in, in motion, I would say, in the 50s and 60s. You, know, you think of Monsignor Ellis's challenge to Catholic universities to kind of catch up to the secular standards of the, uh, the state universities. And much of what he said was interesting and true, but the overall effect was, again, to uh, secularize Catholic colleges and universities. So what can we do as Catholics that take it back, so to speak? Well, I think what we need is an entirely new way of thinking and a new generation of Catholic public intellectuals who are gonna find their voice after having a lot of study and contemplative and sacramental lifestyle. Uh, but I, I would say 
I'm not quite ready, uh, maybe I am, <laughs> to abandon the secular academy. But if I'm not, I'm this close because to me, playing the game of the secular academy is sort of like checking your hat, your coat, your cane, and your faith at the door when you come to the restaurant or the bar. You're, you're basically pretending to be neutral when in fact you're not. And I would say in postmodernism, the university has become not just a secular institute, a secular institution, but a, a, a kind of secularizing weapon. You know, we could almost describe it as the, uh, the vanguard of the new devangelization, which has been going on for 50, 60, 70 years in the Catholic world, but it's been going on for 500 years in the public universities. And so I would say, you know, an alternative approach rooted in the ancient understanding of scripture being ecclesial, liturgical, sacramental, and especially Eucharistic, and at the same time, rolling up your sleeves, getting down on your knees, praying, but studying, you know, your, your mind to the, to the brink where you're able to recognize, okay, there are two competing narratives and this sacramental worldview will boil the other one to rags if we just simply let it. You know, it's like Spurgeon's old line. You don't need to defend the lion. Let him out of his cage. He'll do a better job of defending himself. This sacramental hermeneutic of reading scripture, again, has it has the potential to being validated scientifically every bit as much as it will prove to be more fruitful spiritually. And so we need to raise up a new generation of Catholic intellectuals where the laity and the clergy are in partnership, not egalitarian, certainly will be subordinate to the clergy, but we're going to be partnering with them to show that this way of reading scripture, this way of embracing doctrine, this way of living our lives and approaching our deaths in terms of the divine and the supernatural, the sacramental, I mean, this is the way that we read scripture and make sense out of it literarily, historically, and theologically. And again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would have it no other way. I think they would be up in heaven scratching their heads wondering, why are Catholic intellectuals claiming to be scientifically objective and neutral when their methodology excludes the divine presence and activity of God and history, the supernatural, miraculous, the prophetic, and all of these things. If there's a God, and he has a plan, and he is knowable, then bring all of that to bear, and don't be uncritical in your use of secular methods of historical criticism. Uh, I, I think the other thing, too, that you can do is when you go back and you look at JEDP, you're going to see that, you know, far from something that is truly scientific, this is a secular allegory. You know, when you look at the theory of Wellhausen, J is a 10th century monarchist down south. E, the Elohist, is a 9th century charismatic northerner following the, the, the divided kingdom, following the 10 tribes. D, of course, is the 7th century uh, fraud that convinced Josiah uh, to tear down all of the high places, and P is the lucky guy who got to edit the final form of the Pentateuch and make it priestly with ritual, with Sabbath, with genealogies, and all of the things, you know, that Wellhausen admits that uh, his view of P, the final edition of the Pentateuch, is like hidebound ritualism of medieval Catholicism. At, at times, you can just see the blatant bias when they, when they have achieved a kind of hegemony 
or a near monopoly among scholars, they can kind of take the gloves off and say, this is what we were, this is what we were fighting for. Yeah, we're talking with Dr. Scott Hahn, and the book again is The Decline and Fall of Sacred Scripture, How the Bible Became a Secular Book. Of course, you can get it at the St. Paul Center, um, Amazon, wherever books are sold. Dr. Hahn, with the time that's left, I want to talk to you about the St. Paul Center. Um, you have an event coming up next month. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you, William. Uh, uh, 20 years ago, uh, Kimberly and I, along with Mike Aquilina, founded the St. Paul Center. Uh, our, our intention was pretty simple. That is, we wanted to raise up a new generation of Catholics who would know how to read scripture from the heart of the church. And so the twofold goal was biblical literacy for lady, biblical fluency for our clergy. So we launched a number of projects 20 years ago. Uh, we published in the early years, Understanding the Scriptures with Midwest Theological Forum, which is now used in, I think, almost 40% of Catholic high schools that has this sacramental way of reading the Old Testament and the new, along with typology. The new is concealed in the old, and the old is revealed and fulfilled in the new, but not just back in the first century with the resurrection, but in the 21st century through the Eucharist. And that has really taken hold. I was talking to a teacher just a, a two days ago in Cincinnati, and she was saying when she started teaching 20 years ago, uh, there were no sources, and students would use the texts and basically come away disbelieving that sacred scripture is the word of God. Now, she said 15 years later, 20 years, she's like a whole new generation of high school graduates are emerging. We've also done this um, scriptural fluency for, for, for the clergy and the educators. Uh, and so the St. Paul Center has for the last 14 years sponsored summer institutes with well over 100 men who are getting their PhDs in scripture, theology, historical theology, They've come to live with me for about a week. We do intensive dial lecture. Uh, other people come into lecture and they've formed this network of friendship and partnership. And over a hundred of them are now in teaching positions in seminaries, universities and colleges and high schools. My oldest son, Michael is in his third year as a professor of scripture at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland uh, with a PhD from Notre Dame. And he has a whole host of friends who've gone through this with him. We also host priest retreats, basically showing the Emmaus model that, you know, their hearts were burning within them as the scriptures are open in terms of the old and the new. Then their eyes are open in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread. We've been doing this since 2005, when I was teaching at St. Vincent Seminary in Latrobe part-time. And in, in the last couple of years, the demand has been so great. The waiting list of priests has been so long that we've gone to two. Uh, we have one in January in Southern California, another one in West Virginia nearby in July. And next year in 2022, we're going to three priest conferences. Wow. We're going to add one in Texas a couple of weeks after Easter when priests are really in need of being reinvigorated. And over the years, thousands upon thousands of priests have gone through this, and it's been so exciting. I think next year we'll have over 500. And the parishioners are now sponsoring them because when they come back, they're like, his preaching has been transformed, but their prayer lives have been as well. So next month on October 28th, which is the Feast of Simon and Jude, St. Simon and Jude are my patrons because it also happens to be my 64th birthday. But on October 28th, we're going to get together for the 20th anniversary gala banquet in Orlando. 
Uh, we're hoping to get Cardinal Pell sprung through the State Department to arrive here from the Vatican. We're hitting a bunch of roadblocks right now. Can we imagine. Yeah. And so it, it looks like Jonathan Rumi may be joining us. Uh, George Weigel will be giving us a video clip, a number of others, Bishop Barron, also to celebrate with us and to congratulate us. You know, never in my wildest dreams that I imagined that the St. Paul Center would be celebrating 20 years with well over 40 full-time co-workers. All of us are having, like, are we allowed to have this much fun doing apostolic work for beginner, intermediate, advanced? And stpaulcenter.com is our website, and we've got tons of materials that are mostly free. And I would also say that um, Emmaus Road, which published this book, is our publishing arm. And so Emmaus Road, as well as Emmaus Academic, biblical literacy, we're advancing through Emmaus Road Publishing, biblical fluency for our seminarians, for our priests, for professors, that's what Emmaus Academic is doing. And when you go onto our website and you can check out the books, you know, Emmaus Academic is doing the unthinkable. No academic press makes money. It's only a question of how much will you lose? Will it be five figures or six? Well, I think what we're doing right now in publishing Dr. Lawrence Feingold's texts on fundamental theology, the Eucharist, Christology, the sacraments, we've really found a niche that wasn't noticed before. And so motivated Catholics who used to see themselves as beginners are now intermediates. Those who were intermediate are now advancing. And together, the laity and the clergy are, are, are meeting up in the middle and saying, you know, 15 years ago, why did I never learn to read the Bible this way? And I went to a Catholic seminary. I went to Catholic grade school. Whether you were laity or clergy, you just kind of be bewildered by the fact that you've never heard of typology before. Our goal is to make it so that no one would even think of asking that question in 15 or 20 years. You know, and at the rate our Lord is going, I think, you know, we still have got a long way to go, but we've come a lot longer than I ever could have imagined 20 years ago when we were first founded. And so we'll also be giving an award to Mike Aquilina because he was a co-founder and he has always been behind the scenes with me working out the patristic. We've published at least a eight or 10 of his books through Emmaus as well. He's been a best friend to me and a partner with all of us through 20 years. And so I, I couldn't be more excited about celebrating our 20th anniversary in Orlando, Florida. And if you go to the website, stpaulcenter.com, you'll discover how you can join us for that amazing event as well. So please visit the website. Like Dr. Hahn said, tons of free material there. You will learn so much more than you do now. It's almost, I, I can guarantee that for sure. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Hahn, I thank you so much for your time this evening uh, talking about this book and um, God bless, God bless you and your family and everything you're doing. Thank you very much. Oh, William, you're welcome. And you keep up the great work and thank you for all of the good that you're doing too. May the Lord bless you. Thank you very much. God bless. God bless. And read 500 pages of primary sources. And so I read 200 pages of the Summa and 300 pages of De, De Potentia. And Aquinas on the power of God was to me, you know, it's like, this is what I'm trying to believe as a Calvinist, you know, why are we ignoring this fellow, you know, and right. Sproul and Gershner obviously were fond of him. And so I was too, but I became a complete Thomist by the late seventies. Yeah. Tom, Thomas is a, he's a huge figure. I know. I remember, I remember reading him for the first time and I was so confused, but yeah, <laughs> I know. comes so much more now. <laughs> yeah. It took me that semester, but by the end I was hooked.
Well, I really thank you for your time, William. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dr. Hahn. Enjoy your evening. And like I said, I'll have it up tomorrow. I appreciate your time again. You bet. God bless. God bless. Every day my employees get scam emails. I wanted to protect my business and clients, so I checked out CISA's Secure Our World. They've got four simple ways we can protect our businesses from online threats. Learn more at cisa.gov forward slash secure our world.